0: You're listening to the Mentors for Military podcast with your hosts, Robert Gowan, Rudy Lindsey, Mike Pritz, and Kat Kaelin. Mike actually reached out because he found out that we were going to be having the show. And he was like, because of course I invited him on if he can make it. I don't know if you're aware that Mike's going through his master's program in education right now. When he found out, he was like, so when is Mike going to be on the show? And I go, it's 12.30 Eastern time. And he was like, "Ah, oh, I'm not going to be able to make it. He goes, I, I tell him I'm sorry. He used to be one of my team sergeants. I told him, don't worry. That was the whole setup anyway. We want to be able to talk about you. Because <laughs> we want to get the lowdown on Mike. I mean, okay, so... Yeah, I got the whole picture of, you know, Mike and his wife beater, Ranger panties, you know, trying to lead all these team sergeants as a CSM. Come on, you got to give me the scoop.
1: Oh, he was a good Sergeant Major. He was, he was a... Uh, oh,
0: come on, you got to do better than that now.
1: Well, he was... he's. I mean, one of the things about it, he's he's uh, he was always approachable. So he's always... you he felt like he was kind of the, one of the boys, but you never kind of wanted to overstep your bounds with a CSM. I can see that. But he you know he had that good personality about him and rode motorcycles and had tattoos and he was a team guy he wasn't above reproach you know he was he was he was a real good dude
0: yeah he's still that way of course you know i mean 4 months ago now or so mike was on the show he wrote an article on linkedin impressed me a lot actually some people reached out to me and said hey you got to read this article that was written by a former special forces guy so i went out there and i started reading it about his transition and i don't know if you've read this article but it was about uh, his transitional experience through the Army Career Alumni Program, which I think is TAP now, Transition Assistance Program. Yeah. So he started talking about his struggle and that you know it just didn't really fit what he was doing and somebody of you guys' caliber of coming out with all these skills and the whole bit that when he starts looking at other people that are making the transition, what are they really providing as a service and, and such – and I thought, this guy is speaking my my music here. This is the same type of thing of the reason why I wrote the book, Master the Transition. So I reached out to him and I got his phone number. We jumped on the call. Not only do we have that in common, we started talking about leadership and mentoring and this, that, and the other. And I'm like, Mike, I need to get you on my show. You're very much the type of individual that I think would be great for it as far as mentoring and pulling other guys up and what you're talking about as far as leadership. So he came on the show as a guest initially, made such an impression, it was like, all right, now you've got to stay on the show. And he goes, I'll do as much as I can as often as I can, but I start my master's program coming up here in a few months. And once I do that, my time's going to be a little limited, but I, I want to join. He actually now wants to join as frequently as he can, but it's not as much as he's able to because of it. That's how I met Mike and how Mike came on the show. And he had mentioned somebody that he served with, but I, I never got a chance to really dive into that. And then, of course, I was following you as a regular follow on Instagram and all that kind of stuff. You started putting a lot of mentoring-type quotes out there yeah, on, yeah. on your Instagram account. And it caught my eye. And then, of course, when you put that one out there about the SF guy that you had served with, it was like, all right, what group were you in? Because I started thinking, <laughs> are you the guy that Mike had talked about? It, <laughs> and it turns out it was. So oh really? I it
1: was a good thing. Yeah, yeah,
0: a... yeah. Actually, it was, and I'm glad that you're on the show. I'm glad you're coming on here. Like I said, I followed you for some time now, and you always put really cool quotes on there. And for us, it's all about what can we try to give back and pull the guys forward that are yeah. listening, because there's a lot of knowledge that we end up having. You you end up spending 18 years, and I spent 20 plus. Mike spent 30. Rudy spent 25. And I don't know if you're familiar with Rudy Lindsay.
1: I probably know his face. I was in third group. I started out in third group. I, did, I was in third group for about seven years.
0: Tell me a little bit about your background, because, of course, I, I know you served with Mike, but how did you start off? Did you start off in the conventional Army for a period of time, and then you rolled into Special Forces, or did you go right in?
1: Yeah, so I, I did four years in the Army uh, in, in the infantry as 11 Bravo, you know, pre-9-11, and then I did four years total as 11 Bravo and then went to selection right right at the end of the four year mark, and that was O two, right right after nine eleven. I went to selection, and then uh, been in was in SF from that time until I ETS or got out of the military in two thousand twelve, July fourth of two thousand twelve, and then I transitioned straight into the the National Guard slash reserves, which is the the reserve component of SF with nineteenth group. I was a team sergeant there for a little bit. I made sergeant major in Austin, Texas, with a unit attached to 19th Group. And then um, from there, when I moved to California and started my business, I just uh, transitioned into the inactive ready reserve just recently.
0: Yeah. A couple months ago. So, oh, wow. Recently?
1: Yeah. Maybe four months ago.
0: Okay. I thought I saw some of the, the posts and stuff, but I wasn't sure. I, I follow as well on a an account, uh, Ronan. and yeah,
1: yeah. Two, two land was team, he was team sergeant. Me and him were team sergeants together. Oh, were you?
0: Uh,
1: with Mike Pritz, yeah.
0: Okay. I didn't know that he was another guy that was with Mike. Yeah. Okay. We were
1: both uh, reconnaissance, sniper reconnaissance team sergeants for Mike's commanders in extremist force, or his specialized company. guys gotcha. All
0: right. So how long were you with the 19th group in total then? About two years, sounds like? Yeah. We started there for
1: for about a year and a half, I believe, around there, and then made sergeant major and then transitioned up into Austin and then uh, was there for almost a year and then transitioned out to California and then uh, recently separated.
0: How was your own transition experience? Because, I mean, if you're coming from reserve components and then going to the private sector, it's usually not the same kind of transition. You don't go through a transition assistance program or anything like that to really prepare you for that transition, Right.
1: Yeah, it was tough. I didn't didn't have any formal, there was no formal transitioning process when I got out. In in fact, when I dropped my paperwork, I dropped my paperwork because I was going to work for the government. You know, I I had a a job lined up with a government organization in Northern Virginia and had everything lined up because I just finished my degree, my my bachelor's degree, which was my kind of go criteria to get out of the military period because I wasn't going to step into civilian life without it. Right. And then as I transitioned, uh, the sequester happened, it shut down budgets, and and then I sat really on my butt for six six to nine months, and then was lucky to get picked up in the same kind of gig, but as a contractor. So you know I went from you know being a team sergeant on you know active duty SF team sergeant to transitioning to a contractor, and then was downrange you know sixty days on sixty days off, really until my last trip. Um, In Pakistan about six, seven months ago. So I was on the road frequently, which kept me busy, kept me occupied and helped the transition. But, you know, right now I'm, I'm pretty much experiencing the transition as we speak. What is it?
0: What is it like? You got to tell me because, I mean, it, it. we don't normally get a chance to talk to too many people to go from, you know, reserve components into the private sector. Typically, you're on active duty. You go through the whole transition assistance program. It's a two-week. Here's how to do your resume, the counseling. You're like a fish out of water. You just jump right into it.
1: Yeah, it, it was tough. You know, I, I'm the kind of guy, like, I, I know, you know, after my deployment, I, I did an a SF deployment to Libya, and then we, we we got out of that place. But I went there straight as a civilian and that six to nine months between the transition, by myself, you know, uh, working with the state department and then trying to get contracts. So I was kind of always that guy where I wasn't afraid of independence and just getting out there and just doing what it took to survive and and to get what I needed to get accomplished. But when I transitioned from the civ- civilian contracting sector and to the job I'm I'm at now, it was tough because I, I'm used to government work into that routine and and people think especially in special forces that, you know, they're, they don't, they're good because they don't have routines. You know, they're good because they're unconventional, but we all, we all have routines and we all have convention that make us more comfortable. So I didn't have that anymore. So not having the, the, you know, time allocated for physical fitness and for the range time, and then trying to survive and pay the bills as well was a challenge. But I knew that the only way that I could do it was working for myself and, and gaining my own independence as I did in SF. So it was tough, but, but it's, you know, it's so far been worth the, the risk.
0: Well, there are so many guys, especially from the SF community, they ended up going into the entrepreneurial route and you're one of those as well. Tell us about Fieldcraft and the company that you have created.
1: So, you know, I created Fieldcraft. It's funny how I created Philcraft. Me and my, my girlfriend Lynn from in California, we're sitting around before one of my trips, my rotations, and, and I, I literally took a napkin out and I wrote down, like a good SF guy does, a contingency plan, you know, containing a primary, an alternate, and a contingency, you know. And I, I wrote down my primary, and I think it was like a brewing company. I wanted to, you know, own, own a, a beer brewing company. yeah,
0: yeah.
1: Uh-huh. And alternate was a known brainer. Be, being a tactical instructor, I mean, that's what a lot of SF guys do because we're, you know, a dime a dozen in the tactical world. And I think the the last thing I put was um, something in the realm of survival because it was to me the most interesting and something that I, for some reason I could I associated in my soft career that I've always enjoyed doing. You know all the the special operations, sear courses, survival courses. I wrote those down and I got a whiteboard and I started doing course of action development and planning things out, and then realized that survival you know had the best really untapped resource for consumers because, you know, not a lot of people specialize in survival or preparedness in the realm of like man-made catastrophes or like active shooter scenarios type stuff. Sure. A lot of people do it, you know, they rub sticks together and they go in the wood line and they do that kind of stuff. Like naked
0: and afraid. Yeah. Like the naked, and afraid.
1: <laughs> plenty of people who are naked and afraid, but there's not a lot of people who are actually doing it in relation, you know, to the counterterrorism spin, which I right. think is a, a significant threat. So, taking all that information, and I went to Pakistan with all that information, and was doing my contract job, and, you know, I just started, you know, nugging away, and uh, my girlfriend was doing the same thing in California, and we we basically on each end. Conus and Oconus developed this uh, this company from scratch.
0: Wow, that's amazing. I mean, just taking it from the paper napkin, I don't know if you're familiar with Griff from Combat Flip-Flops, but we had him on yeah. the show. Yeah, you are. So we had him on the show as well, and he was talking about how he just kind of came up with the idea the same kind of way that what you're talking about, and actually it's because he picked up a, a homemade flip-flop, really, that was made out of a sole of a combat boot. Started looking at it and thought, geez, that's a brilliant idea. And that's how it was kind of formed. So it's crazy how you end up doing that and coming up with these ideas. Now, if you initially, when you were talking about brewing it, you got the Long tab Brewing, you got D'Espresso LaBear. So if you'd have gone coffee, you know, I was going to go, wow, man, you're falling right down the path here. You got coffee. (laughs) And and D'Espresso LaBear is not the only one, nor is Long tab Brewing the only SF brewing or coffee company. So it's really cool that they end up going into those things. And and it's probably because they do a lot of drinking, drink a lot of coffee, Uh, Okay. Then government contracting. Yeah. (laughs) The brainchild was on a napkin. I love the whole idea. Those are sometimes the best plans, by the way, in a business plan, when you sit down and write it on the back of a napkin, because it doesn't, it's, it's really your heart and soul coming into that. And you're putting everything you've got into it and you're, you're applying your purpose and passion in that way. So what did it take to really kind of kick that thing off from an entrepreneurial standpoint? What was the next step beyond that? What'd you have to do?
1: I talk about this a lot. I, I think that you know SF guys or you know guys in the military have the you know the experience tied in with the training to be able to take an objective or a goal or an end state and you know execute it with deliberate planning. And that's what I did. You know, I it's it's easy for people to talk about concepts, and uh, we we all do it. You know, I, I'm conceptually, I, you know, I, I try to invent things and be innovative and do all these different things in my mind, but it's harder to actually execute tangible, you know, step by step processes to get to the point in which you reach your end state. Um, So, you know, for me, it was breaking down, you know, backwards planning from the end state, which is owning a survival company and backwards planning was to develop plans with backstops, with uh, gates, with phases and ensure that I stuck to that plan. And I started realizing that the more time that I invested into the business, the more time that I expended energy in the business, it grew. It didn't have anything other to grow. You know, there was no other place for it to, to go but to, to go up. So um, the more I spent, in, invested in it, the started doing the research, started reading the books. And, you know, I, I'm a, I would say that I'm, I'm more business oriented because I grew up in business with my family. But I don't have an education in business. I have a, you know, education in homeland security and counterterrorism. But applying all those processes that you know Ranger School, that SF, that the military taught me, uh, was a, a, a seamless transition. You know, you just got to replace the beans and bullets with beans and, you know, <laughs> office supplies.
0: Right. Right. <laughs> well, and it's so true. I mean, what you said about the soft community and SF community and how. They're more focused and business-minded in that the background I think you guys have and evaluating the circumstances, looking at the risks, assessing things, doing after action reports, all those things are aspects that goes along with how to set up a business, run a business. I mean, mind you, there's a whole lot of other aspects that go with it as well, as you know, but those are some of the key traits that if you have that ability to at least go in with that kind of mindset, too many people start off with an idea. They don't know what to do next. They end up investing their homes, selling their cars, putting all kinds of things up, and they didn't know the first thing about how to do it, and they didn't invest enough time into it as well. I mean, that was one of the things that you mentioned. You realize that the more that you put into it, the more you got back out of it, and that the business started thriving. I think a lot of people end up going down that path, and they don't realize that to start off, you got to take out the trash. You know, you got to yeah. you got to pay the bills. You got to you are the business. So yep. that, that's fascinating with all the things that are going on right now in the world. This is a really good time for your type of business as well, because, I mean, we're having more and more types of attacks that we're we're labeling as terrorist attacks here in our own country and having the wherewithal and the knowledge and stuff to be able to deal with those types of critical situations, I think is going to be really important that Americans begin to embrace that a lot more today because it really is going to be here more.
1: Yeah. And it's hard. It's tough because being in the military and kind of having a selfless career and, you know, nothing's defined by monetary gains because, you know, we all grew up poor in the army. It's not like it's, we do it for the money and then transitioning into business where your, your, your goal is to monetize uh, what you're putting out, whether it's service or equipment, it's tough because my industry is survival and preparedness. So I want to prepare civilians, but I have to monetize as well. And I always told Lynn, and I told you know everybody that kind of is in our circle that I'm not inspired or motivated by money. I'm inspired by
0: right. You know,
1: if the military, the military which gave me really all these tools that I'm using to to run my business, or really by the taxpayers, they 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 paid me to go to a sniper school and all these high speed schools. If I'm taking that and manifesting it and shaping it into something that I could pass off to a civilian who could be better prepared. I don't have to even worry about the the monetization of making money. It, that's going to come. And I think now more than ever, it's needed because even in SF and, and Mike knows this, I think we might've had these conversations. It's we try to protect all the things that are in special operations because a lot of the thing ties into operational security that, that may or may not, uh, lead to, um, the compromise of whatever, you know, you know, military tactics and techniques and procedures. But if I, if I have something that I'm holding on to, like the process in which to, to plan a contingency or the way in which you would plan to, uh, pack a go bag for your family, I can't justify not Giving that information to a civilian who's going to be better prepared, and so I'm trying to find the, the strike the good balance. But more so now than ever, it's becoming um, an issue as a parent, more by the media, but it's 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 a global problem that we were fighting when we were in the military. That now all of a sudden we're seeing pour out into civilian sectors of I, I think every every country.
0: When you start thinking about those who might be listening and going, okay, gosh, are we going as far as being the doomsday people? You know, there was a whole show, reality show about putting stuff in your basement, digging a hole, the whole bit. That's not I don't think what you're really talking about. I think what you're talking about is somewhere perhaps in the middle or maybe maybe kind of give an idea of what you're kind of describing there of how to prepare without kind of being an extremist as well.
1: Yeah, you're right. Because my my whole business strategy is I I don't want to market towards specifically towards a guy who's you know in the middle of a rural area who is living off the grid. I want to be able to influence and market towards the people who would never even think about coming to me for survival and preparedness. Te- uh, you know, teaching or or uh, equipment. Maybe that person's sitting in the middle of a city and is an urbanite and they don't even want want to deal with uh, survival and preparedness. The way the way that w- that we've done it is, we've minimized the amount of equipment. I, you know, I, we have a minimalist, you know, Green Beret survival kit, but we've minimized it so it's not so, for lack of a better term, scary for civilians who are, are trying to get into preparedness. Uh, another thing we've done is, you know, we've made really the culture and brand that we're developing is it's all about mindset. It has nothing to do with specifically anything that you're picking up and preparing in a barrel or preparing in a closet, but it has everything to do with the way in which you think and the way in which you prepare. If we could change people's mindset through culture, through content, uh, through branding, then we can get them maybe to come and say, hey, well, you know, Mike's telling me that this little kit, which is I could fit in a purse, a glove box, a, a center console... Isn't going to overwhelm my life, but it will actually allow me to survive for an extended period of time. If something happened catastrophic, then we've kind of met our business objective. And again, we're, you know, we're not getting rich off this stuff, but for for us on a daily basis, it drives the train and, and helps us um, move forward. in and our standard ethical, you know, business practices.
0: There are a lot of people that I don't think do enough preparedness. What you're really talking about is there could be a tornado, an earthquake, a situation that you never thought you're going to be in, including an active shooter, that what you're providing is the type of wherewithal background and training and such that can help them prepare them for whatever that type of situation may be.
1: Yep, absolutely. That's that's right on because we use psychology. You know, I'm I'm not a psychologist. Uh, You know, I'm just a... Uh, a person who's regurgitating and reframing and restructuring some things that some uh, smart psychologists have talked about. But one of the guys we use, his name is John Leach, and he talks about survival psychology. Just like our immediate action processes in the military in responding to something that's that might be scary, those same processes are the things that help us get through a survival situation. So we start with in our survival training classes is teaching people why we do the things that we do when things get scary. When a tornado comes in our path and the first thing we do is whip out a cell phone, uh, why when an explosive device might go off and we pace around not understanding what to do. So we we teach them that, hey, in the absence of information, when, when you don't have a training process to respond, then... As we develop that, uh, we give them the tools necessary to fill in those gaps. So when something does happen, we're training them to have these immediate action responses and to think about what's happening, as opposed to you know potentially flailing. Uh, we use a we use a uh, a popular number put out by John Leach it's called 108010, or describes that 10 percent of the population is going to survive because they have those processes. 80% of the population is going to, you know, 50-50, depending on the luck of the situation, might survive, but may not. And then 10% of the population is destined to die. Well, if you want to get in that 10% bracket or the high end of that 80% bracket, you have to understand what's happening and you have to train. So, you know, taking all those those tangible approaches that we had in the military, uh, where you see something through uh we, we try to apply it to survival because it's really the same thing.
0: Practice and doing those types of situational awareness things this is gonna be so important. We we don't think about too much about a tornado hitting our house or a hurricane or active shooter situation or any type of event that you're talking about here, a car accident that you're driving by. You don't actually think about it too much until all of a sudden it's there. And you're right, too many people actually grab a camera and the first thing they want to do is videotape the tornado coming at their house because they want the 15 minutes of fame rather than the reaction of, okay, I need to start doing this. We've already practiced about, you know, where to go, what to do, the events that now need to take place and everything most people don't go in that type of reactionary mode because they haven't trained their mind and their body to start thinking that way. And that's really what you're offering is, hey, you need to start practicing. You need to start thinking about the approach, the process that you're going to take when these types of situations occur. And oh, by the way, here are some tools to be able to help you as well as you go through it.
1: Yep. And that's, it's funny because you know how we do in the military, you could do a map reconnaissance, which is, significantly important in understanding the overall atmospherics of the area that you're going into well that simple process of looking at a map analyzing the terrain looking at potential routes looking at alternate routes that entire process is exactly what we do in a classroom but it's better than not doing that process at all because when you take a scenario and you exercise uh, the rehearsal by going through and and talking about things that you could do in any scenario, you're rehearsing it. And so the first time that it happens to you, yeah, it, it, it might not be directly applicable to the situation. But you know disasters are disasters and they follow the same ebbs and flows. So if I teach a person how to react to a gunfight, if they take those same processes that we teach them and apply it to a tornado, then they have a higher statistical probability of surviving yeah, in uh, a better outcome
0: totally makes sense to me and i mean a lot of people do plan for of course tornadoes if you live out in the midwest or certain regions where they're very heavy but if you're in an area that say in the south where the odds are better that you're not going to get hit by a tornado you're not somebody that typically prepares for it but you should be somebody that prepares for those types of events i like the way you described it too in determining from the map standpoint where are you going to go how are you going to read the situation I mean, there are situations where you could be out on the golf course, as crazy as it may sound, and a lightning bolt starts hitting around you. Most people run for a tree. Well, that's the craziest thing to do. Situational awareness. Understanding the what's around you, where you should be moving. Obviously, you guys are taught this a lot within special forces of constantly monitoring the area, so much so that, of course, I talk with you know, Mike and others about it's hard to turn that off on occasion where you're constantly over analyzing, assessing who is around you, what's around you, you're back to the wall, where's the exits, the whole bit. But there's a lot of good that comes out of that. And that's what you're trying to teach as well is to understand your situational awareness so that you have that higher probability of survival, really knowing what your circumstances around you.
1: If I could convey this practice and then a civilian practices it, and then make some of these tools subconscious thought, you know it, I would say if me and Mike walked into a restaurant, there's not a lot of thought put into the practices that we practice in security and you know situational awareness because it's subconscious because we've done it so much, it's ingrained in us it's it's muscle memory, so when you get to that point and you start you start doing things that uh, you typically wouldn't do in your standard practice of behavior on a daily basis. Some of those things could be beneficial, like you said, and that's what we want to do. We don't want to, we don't want to change people's lives to where uh, it's impractical and, and it's uncomfortable for the people around them. But if we could switch them on and, and make them more aware and like you said, more situation, situationally aware, uh, then we're better off for it. I, I think, Really ninety percent of our company is doing that through education um, that's not monetized and, you know in hoping that we could point them in the right direction or source them in the right direction for peers of mine in special operations or civilian buddies of mine in survival preparedness so they could seek out some of this, this training that's needed.
0: For some of the folks that are coming off active duty, what's what are the advice that you're now providing them? They're coming to you and going, Hey Mike, I see that you just made it out. Man, you know, what's it like? What you know, I'm looking forward to it the whole bit, but what kind of advice?
1: That's the biggest yeah, I've never I never was prepared with coming out in the social media realm the social media realm and then being this uh mentor without trying to be a mentor. You know, we're 15 kids a day text me or message me on, uh, on Instagram and Facebook or whatever. And that's what they want to know. They don't want to know like what survival kit they need. They want to know how they get in special operations, how they get in special forces, you know, which path to take. And, and mainly like the staple of, of my advice is you need to educate yourself. If you want to be in these positions, um, if you want to be what you see as the tip of the spear in the military, then you have to, on your own, take all the the appropriate measures to to succeed in that. Nobody is going to hold your hand in, in the infantry and special forces and combat arms and the military. It's just not going to happen. I think I could clearly remember specific crossroads in my life, especially in my special operations career, where if I didn't stand up and do something, say something, take action, then... I wouldn't have been where I would have gone in in special operations, so but the first piece of advice is you know is is be really a self starter, be independent, be an innovator, but don't be afraid to take action on your own and figure things out on your own. I, I give kudos to those kids who who ask me for advice because even I mean for when I think about when I was a kid, a seventeen year old in the infantry, even thinking about going to you know a former sergeant major green beret. I wouldn't do it. Right, right. But these kids are standing up in this new generation, and it's they're, they're a text away. Good for them. And I always – actually, when I get off the phone with you, I actually have a call with a kid who's going to see a recruiter. He doesn't have a father. He doesn't have a brother. He doesn't have a role model. Oh, wow. He doesn't have anybody in the military, and he wants advice on what he should do when he goes in the recruiter. And <laughs> it's funny because every one of these situations, especially this kid when I talk to him, it's going to be. Don't listen to the recruiter. Listen to exactly <laughs> what I say. Don't <laughs> sign anything until I tell you to do it. Um, yeah, but it's it's being a self starter. You know, it, I don't think any of these kids who want to be something high speed in the military are going to get to the point in which they're high speed unless they can do it on their own accord.
0: Well, so many of them again have seen movies. Follow. I mean, with social media, as you mentioned, there's so many pictures on Instagram that. People follow, and they and I thought there were a lot of soft and SF and former veterans that are probably following a lot of these things. So I started looking at them and paying attention to them myself, and then I started realizing that ninety percent of the people who are making the comments on them never served in the military—not day <laughs> one—but they love, you know, the the whole war, the whole. You got a whole different idea of what the reality is here. So I'm glad that you're you're getting a chance to actually speak to them and. Maybe give them a shock of reality and a dose of that because it's needed. But I also noticed that you started doing or beginning to offer some training to help individuals who may be thinking about going into special operations or special forces by some kind of physical training or something.
1: Yeah. So I I have a couple of things going. One is a DVD series that uh, me and a buddy, a former uh, you know SF guy, he's retired, Kevin Treader, we started this DVD series. Uh, it's a three volume series and it's it's all about getting selected for special forces and what we wanted to do was create really a baseline of education for people who don't have family in the military aren't familiar with the way things happen in the army and then give them a foundation of physical fitness, how to ruck how to treat your feet you know h- how to have the right mindset because it's not cheating it's not Opsec. When you're trying to give guys who want to be, you know, they mentally maybe even have the, they just have the desire and the will, but they don't have the education to be in those uh, those positions. So we wanted to start out by giving them education. Another thing that we do is with Philcraft is I do consultations. You know, I consult for several corporations, pretty big corporations, and I talk to managers and CEOs and all kinds of high level management in the corporate world. But I want to talk to kids. I want to talk to kids who who need advice on paths to take because, you know, just like you did, just I think just like our generation did, we kind of learned it the hard way because we didn't have resources like social media. Right. We didn't have that access to information uh, when when we were coming up in the military. So if I can give them a path and say, "Hey, if this is what you want to be and this is your end state, you don't want to take this path," and here's why. Uh, I do that. I do that on a daily basis, talking, talking to these young, impressionable minds. And sometimes they just want somebody to say, join the army, go get it and do and be the best that you could be. And that's enough. Right. I and mean, they were on the fence, right at a crossroad, And that's all they needed.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, the fact that you're giving of your time and knowledge of background to give to these kids, I think is great, too. Because there probably are going to be a lot more that's going to reach out to you. It sounds too though that you're almost like developing a pre-selection course, which is really cool when you think about it. Because individuals who may think that they want to do that can go through the course and then they can find out whether or not they need to go back and reassess their whole thing as well.
1: Yeah, it's I, I, you know like you said before, is Hollywood is you know portrayed and and perceived how SF guys are and. You know military guys are a period, and so giving these these young guys and 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 now gals these tools is something that I wish I had you know i well all the only thing I'm doing is is coming up with ideas of the things that I wish I could have had access to sure you know to to me and maybe maybe you experienced this going into clothing and sales in the book aisle you know and and seeing. I think I have the book here. It's this is the uh, Ranger Digest. You know, it's a small like cheat pamphlet. Oh yeah,
0: I've um, seen that. But it
1: has cool ways to tie knots and, and sure. little cheats. And, and I had a buddy was, that gave
0: me the Ranger Handbook, so that way yeah, uh, yeah. That the, I've got it upstairs.
1: Was was the absolute the the, the best thing. I mean, the the twenty one seventy six was was where it was at because that was your education. You know, that was the way that you you learned. But now. To relay this information, it, everything's everything's on some kind of media outlet, and to be able to influence these minds with this this uh, outlet is is so easily done. And if we could do it in a positive way, which we we always do, I I think it only better's. I think you know, for me, the the next generation of warriors, the next generation of Mike Pritz that serve their country and then you know do thirty years in the military. <laughs> And come out of it, you know, going into their master's program, but they do it selflessly.
0: You know, that's what it's all about, really. I mean, that's the reason why you stayed in. Probably one of the things you loved, I know that I loved about being senior enlisted, is being able to really mentor other individuals and help them achieve and not make the same stumbles. They don't always listen, but it's always it always makes me feel better when I'm able to pass on that kind of knowledge and and kind of give back. And then I I think it's what's really cool is Mike and I talked about a lot how we end up seeing some of those who did listen who we're still in contact with today and we're talking 15, 20 years ago. And, of course, they still refer to us as Sarge or whatever, you know, and that's how they see us. Uh, at that stage of their life, because I was a uh, let's say an E5, an E6, or an E7 at that time frame, and but I think it's really cool that you're able to make that kind of an impression and pass that kind of knowledge on to where even today there's that bond, and of course there's always a bond between veterans. But I mean, when it's somebody who was truly a mentor, as you refer to Mike, I can I can hear it in your voice, and obviously Mike feels the same way about you. There is just that common bond too of where a mentor and a mentee it worked. And somebody paid attention, and now you're passing that same thing on. You did it while on active duty. You're trying to do it now through Philcraft. I think it's great. I
1: appreciate it. Yeah, we're we're trying.
0: So, what can we do to help? So, how can people find you? How can people learn more about Philcraft?
1: So we, you know, we're always available on our website. We we have a website. It's uh, PhilcraftSurvival.com. We have Facebook. We're pretty active on Facebook, and then we tie in the Instagram. But our Facebook is Philcraft LLC, and that's one word. And then you know our big social media outlet is Instagram. We have uh, two accounts. I have Soft Survivor S O F Survivor, which is Special Operations Forces Survivor, and then I have Phil Craft Survival. Um, both of them pushing out different content. More Soft Survivor is more for mentoring mentorship, and then Phil Craft Survival is our, our product line. And then me and Kevin Treader have a couple of podcasts on uh, Ranger TV on iTunes.
0: Awesome. So if people want to go ahead and purchase the items that you've talked about or go through the training, these are the locations where they can find more information and sign up. Can they do it long distance? Is this something they can sign up and they don't have to physically be in California or how does that work?
1: Yeah. So on fieldcraftsurvival.com, we got, we have a store page, but it's tied into our training page. So you can see what kind of training courses we have available. What we're trying to do is we're, we're trying to get more efficient and, uh, uh, actually disseminating the training information by doing webinars. So we'll be doing that soon. And then most of our courses are held now in California, but we'll be hosting uh, courses in Colorado, Texas, and then uh, somewhere in North Carolina that's not not defined yet over the, the next year, the next fiscal year.
0: So the calendar is going to be on the website. They can look and see where you're going to be at. Sign up. Excellent.
1: Yep. Go so craftsurvival.com. It's all on there.
0: Great. Thank you so much for being on here, man. Appreciate it.
1: I appreciate having me on, and thanks for what you guys do, and uh, I look forward to to
0: hearing more. Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and at Facebook by searching at Mentors, the number four M-I-L, and please subscribe to our podcast. It's free, and it ensures you're the first to hear our latest podcast show. We have several options depending upon your device, and we're at iTunes, SoundCloud, at Stitcher, and at TuneIn Radio.